As I've had opportunity to fill in for Pastor Keynes here over the last several months, uh, I've asked that we direct our attention to passages in Matthew's gospel, and I'd like for us to again look at Matthew's gospel this morning, Matthew chapter 12. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, it's important that we see and seek to understand what God has to say. So if for some strange reason you don't have your Bible with you this morning, we've provided a copy for you right there in front of you. So please, uh, I don't know the page number of that. Uh, <laughs> we're a little off. 816. It's right there in front of you. Turn to 816 and you'll, we'll all be on the same page as we look at Matthew chapter 12. And we'll read verses 38 through 50. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also will be with so also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my brother, here are my mother and my brothers, for whosoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. May the Lord help us to understand this portion of his word. What a what a, a peculiar thing for the religious leaders to ask Jesus there in verse 38 show us a sign, show us a spectacular, jaw-dropping, miraculous sign. Uh, after all, in this text, uh, uh, immediately before the passage that we just read and something that we looked at together uh, a few weeks ago, uh, they had concluded and conceded that Jesus performs miracles. Uh, that 
that was their problem. They couldn't deny those things that were evident before them. The people had seen the miracles. They, the religious leaders, had seen the miracles. And that's the reason, as we saw before, they accused him of doing what he did by the power of the evil one. They said, sure, he's casting out demons, but he's doing it by the power of demons. He's doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus, as we saw, answered them with a, with a series of illustrations and arguments that, that showed their accusations as absurd and, and ridiculous and dangerous. So how can they now come right back to him and say, show us a miraculous sign. Show us uh, something that's undeniable uh, if that's what he's been doing. Well, I think the operative word, he, uh, word here is sign. Uh, they're really not disputing that he works miracles. Uh, they've tried to discredit him by saying the power is the power of the evil one, but they're asking now for him to perform such a miracle that it would serve as a sign that would remove every and all doubts. They're saying, give us something definitive. Give us something so decisive. Give us something so demonstrative that we won't ever be able to question you again. Now, John in his gospel calls all of Jesus' miracle signs. He tells us that everything that Jesus did was a sign. A sign of what? A sign doesn't, doesn't point to itself. When you see a sign out there on the highway, you don't just pull over, you know, admiring the sign. You look at it, you take in the message. If it says speed limit 55, you look at it, you understand, you get the message, and then you drive on 65, as most of us do. If it says this way to Nashville and that's the way you're going, you note it and you take the appropriate route, you're getting information from these signs because signs don't exist for their own sake. They're giving us a message about something else. And John says everything Jesus did was a sign. These people came and say, give us a sign so great that we can't doubt you or doubt anything you say. And I must confess that I kind of identify with these guys. Can't you? I've had those moments in my life when I've wanted to say, Lord, you have created the heavens and the earth. You summoned them by fiat, by your powerful word. And you sustain all things by your word. And what I'm asking is really no big deal. It's a small thing for you, Lord. Just move the furniture around in the room. You know, just flip that thing upside down. Just let me see it once, and I won't ask again. I just need that assurance. I'm going through these tough times right now. I need to know that this is real Have you ever thought that? Come on, Lord. Just do this little thing. Show yourself. Make this child well. 
What is it to you, the maker of heaven and earth? It's a little thing. Touch this loved one. Put this family together. Resolve this complex problem that I have. Heal this land. Don't we long for God to do something to bear his arm as he did in the days of Elijah so dramatically, so demonstratively that the prophets of Baal will be wiped out? Well, what's our Lord's response? Does he say, I know exactly the way you feel. I understand your desire for a sign is perfectly natural. It's to be expected. Look at verse 39. He says, it's an evil, an adulterous generation that seeks a sign. You know, why does he respond this way? Why is he so seemingly harsh with us at a point where we can all identify well, let me just say that by adulterous generation, he's not referring, I think, to sexual immorality, but rather in the prophetic sense that Israel's God was the Lord. And whenever, whenever Israel began to doubt God and to run after other gods, as it were, she was accused of adultery, of a spiritual infidelity. And Jesus is saying, you are evil and faithless people. You're not trusting God. And the reason, I believe, is found in, in, in such places and passages and psalms as, as Psalm 19, where we're told that the entire created order, that this universe is one great sign that should tell us that there is a benevolent God. All of creation declares this to be so. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament declares His handiwork day by day by day. Speech, communication, revelation is being poured forth. Night unto night reveals knowledge. His Word goes out to the ends of the earth, and anyone who has eyes to look and to see, to see that you don't get something from nothing, and that entropy tells us that we can't even break even. There is this precise ordered universe. Where did it come from? Why is there something instead of nothing? God made it. God put it there. Look at his artistry. Look at his power. Look at his symmetry. Look at the grace he's given us. And so there are signs all around us. And then these people were standing in the presence of Jesus. These were the religious leaders, the simple folk who didn't who didn't spend all their time studying God's Word and, and pretending to be pe- uh, teachers. These simple folk listened to our Lord's teaching. They listened to such things as the Sermon on the Mount, and they said, you know, why, why, why God is at work in this man? No one ever spoke like this. No one ever spoke with such uh, authority. Could this be the Messiah? They looked at the things that he did and the words that he spoke, and they say, could this be the son of David? No one has, has ever, even Elijah or Elisha, no one has ever performed such mighty, spectacular, undeniable miracles. And so the simple common folk are looking at Jesus. They're being drawn to faith. 
and the religious leaders acknowledging that he's, he's speaking with tremendous authority, acknowledging that he's doing mighty miracles and wonders, uh, they won't call them signs, uh, now stand before and say, well, uh, that was interesting. You know, what else you got up your sleeve? And Jesus is basically saying, God doesn't perform on demand. God doesn't jump through hoops for people who are blinded by their own sin and hardness and faithlessness that they fail to see his hand at work in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different places every day. You know, we're all a little like the old story of the fellow who while mending his roof, lost his balance and started to slide off. And he cried out, oh, Lord, save me, I'm sliding. And then his belt caught on a nail. And he says, never mind, a nail has saved me. I mean, unless the angels descend, we can't or we don't acknowledge God's sustenance and his care in every moment of our lives. And here Jesus says, such a generation does not ask for, uh, dare not ask for a sign. But then he says, one sign will be given. One sign. One sign that is definitive. One sign that is decisive. And after that sign, no one should ask for another. And he says, it's the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. What's that? He explains in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the people listening to Jesus, I don't believe exactly understood what he was saying. No, um, for one thing, they didn't understand because whenever Jesus used this uh, title of himself, Son of Man, they didn't always understand what he meant. Because son of man was an was a Aramaic and Hebraic phrase uh, that could just mean a man. Uh, so if you said uh, a man went to such and such a city, uh, they might say uh, a son of man went to such and such a city. So when Jesus would say a son of man, or we might, trans or we might translate it the son of man, because uh, sort of now in retrospect, uh, we see it as a title. They listen and think that he's talking uh, that he's talking about himself. Is, is he talking about himself, or is he speaking of someone else? Uh, a man went into the belly of the earth, uh, just as Jonah went into the belly of the great fish. I mean, that's a sign. But what's that? Uh, have we seen it? Did we miss it? Is it coming? Is it future? Has it gone by? What's going on? And that's why I believe the. The last moments of Jesus' earthly ministry when he was on trial before the high priest, and they paraded all of these witnesses uh, who had lied and contradicted each other, and they're standing there uh, really with no case against Jesus, totally frustrated because their witnesses haven't agreed with each, uh, each other or cooperated in any way. Uh, the high priest, apparently in this great moment of frustration, says to Jesus, will you please tell us whether or not you're the Messiah, if you are the Son of God? And Jesus says, I tell you that I am, and you shall see the heavens opened and the Son of Man coming with power and glory. And then 
they all uh, they understood that son of man the son of man that he was talking about he's speaking of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 uh, where he says I saw one like the son of man going to the presence of God and receive from him power and dominion and authority and he shall judge the earth and at that moment suddenly the high priest as if the lights were finally on the high priest says You've been telling us all along about that son of man. And he rips his garments and he says, we need no other witnesses. You have heard it with your own mouth. He's a blasphemer. He's claiming to be that son of man. But at this point in Matthew chapter 12, they still didn't know it. So what he said to them was not understood until he rose from the dead. And as we'll see in a moment, uh, then it became uh, apparent to his people this, this powerful and precious and definitive sign uh, that we could ever have. And just as a side here, the, the sign was for three days and three nights. This, of course, is is difficult to reconcile with later accounts in the Gospels of the lengths of time that Jesus was actually in the tomb. Uh, that's for another time, but suffice it to say that, that a feature often employed in Aramaic and Hebrew speech was the use of synecdoche. Synecdoche. That's when a part can be used for the whole or a whole can be used for the part. And the Jews frequently did this uh, in their language. We have uh, many examples of it in the Scriptures themselves in which part of a day was spoken of in terms of a day and a night. So by uh, noting this use of, the, uh, of their language, the reference seal of, here of three days and three nights um, is reconcilable with passages at the end of the gospel accounts. But the point, the point is this. God has given a sign so great that anyone who has heard of this sign is confronted now with God's final definitive sign and dare not ask him for another. And this sign stands over against the, um, the kind of pietistic, um, life-degenerating religion that we too often use in the name of true spirituality. It seems to me that we that we continue, it's so pervasive, we continue to court and, and we continue to absorb a frame of reference that was championed by Greek philosophers rather than a biblical frame of reference. We too often speak of the immortality of the soul only and, and, and almost by that denigrating the body. We see this world only as the veil of tears and pain from which someday we will be, uh, will be delivered in salvation. And we have this sort of airy, fairy, uh, hallmark, greeting card picture of heaven. Now, that's a picture of Greek philosophy and not of the Scriptures. When Paul stood before a, a group of Greek philosophers there in Athens and he preached on Mars Hill, they listened with great interest until he spoke of the resurrection of the body from the dead. And then they laughed at him and walked away. Why? Because to the Greek immersed in Plato and, and Plato's legacy, 
This world was evil, a world of shadows, and we need to get free from it. And the true philosopher would, would be rid of it at last and dwell with, with eternal forms, the immortality of the soul, free from the, the, the confines of the body. That is what we are to seek. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God made the heavens and the earth and called it all good. And that even when our sin... Um, um, uh, has entered into God's creation um, and this creation of which we are a part. We are not immortal souls that have a body. We are a body, an ensouled body. And the picture that we have in Revelation of the martyrs there waiting under the throne is not of the, uh, of the, of the contented immortals who've gotten free of their awful bodies, it is of a people saying, Lord, when, when is it going to end? How long, O oh Lord, before the end of this interim until we get our bodies back? We are uh, ant uh, eagerly anticipating the resurrection of the body. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, this universe waits, as it were, on tippy-toe for the redemption of the people of God, the new heavens and the new earth. We teach, we believe in the resurrection of the dead because God came down, took our flesh, lived our life, and this is the sign. He's not a philosopher's God off somewhere in airy-fairy land. He's the one who came and tabernacled in our flesh and became a man. And in the presence of the living God today, there stands a man, Christ Jesus, who rose from the dead as the first fruits and the promise that all that are his will one day rise from the dead and be given back an earth made whole and right, paradise restored, pristine and perfect. Now that's the doctrine of the resurrection. And Jesus did not do this, you know, uh, in a corner. And it's not recorded for us, you know, in some poem a hundred years after the event. He rose from the dead. He was seen by hundreds who went to their deaths, often painful deaths, saying, testifying that he had risen from the dead. He is risen indeed. And the bedrock inflexible sign of the Christian church is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is vain, your faith is in vain, everything that we do is mere foolishness. When we try to, to reach the world by making making Christianity less offensive, the latest and best self-help program, how to put your marriage together, how to be happy at work, how to be successful, how to have peace of mind. So much, it seems, uh, of contemporary preaching is nothing more than that kind of moralism. It either confuses Christianity with the American way and wraps itself in, in national flags or it confuses Christianity with the latest self-help book on the market. And I would just say, if your family has struggled, 
struggling, if your health is shot, if you have no employment, but you have Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, you have everything. And the message of the gospel, Christ is risen, and it's in a new heaven and a new earth toward which we look. And as we go through this life now, we are celebrating what God has done in vindicating his son and raising his son from the dead. And we are part and parcel of this thing and we reach out to others that they may see this same sign and embrace that one and be made new. Jesus said no other sign will be given. And then he begins to speak words of warning to those around him. He begins with, with, a, with a clear transition. He's talking about Jonah. So he uses Jonah to, to segue right into three, three words uh, or, or statements of warning that he gives. He's, he says, think about Jonah for a minute. What kind of guy was he? You know about Jonah. Was he a person seeking God's will uh, you know, uh, at a mission conference, we're going to have uh, reports tonight on God's work in the world. It's a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a challenging thing for us, and perhaps we're going to be moved. Yes, I want to I be more involved in this, in this great enterprise of taking the gospel to the ends of the world. You know, was Jonah uh, that kind of person at a missions conference there hearing the great needs of the world and the great needs of Nineveh, standing up and volunteering? Here I am, Lord, send me. Jonah was a prophet of God who, when God came to him and said, I'm sending you to Nineveh, uh, Jonah got on the next boat heading in the opposite direction. Why? Was he a coward? No, he was a patriot. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians were the cruelest people of their age. We still have these base reliefs that show the Assyrian victory tablets that were made, you know, after conquering nations, and it shows them marching with long sticks with hooks in them uh, through the noses of the leaders of the people that they, has, they had subjugated dragging them with hooks in their nose back to Nineveh. They were unspeakably cruel, and Jonah hated them. And he knew that God was going to judge them for their wickedness, and he could not wait. And now God says to him, I want you to go, and I want you to tell the people of Nineveh. I want you to warn them. And Jonah's thoughts are, well, I don't want to warn them. <laughs> I want them to get destroyed. They've killed my friends and, and my family. I'm not, I'm not going to go and warn them and tell them to repent. So Jonah gets on a boat and he heads in the opposite direction from Nineveh. And God, through this great sign of the great fish, gets, gets Jonah to Nineveh. And even then, even then, Remember how after proclaiming God's word to the people of Nineveh, the people repent. God is graciously working. After this, Jonah retreats to a hill overlooking the city and there has a pity party. He's really disappointed about all of this. And Jesus is saying, you know, you've got Jonah, this guy. 
And it almost sounds a little bit like that old debate between Lloyd Benson and Dan Quill. You remember that way back when, when he said, hey, I knew Jack Kennedy, and you're no Jack Kennedy. Jesus, in effect, is saying, I know Jonah, and he's no Jesus. But when Jonah went to that wicked city of Nineveh, they listened to him. They repented. And here I am. I have come to you, not dragged and kicking and screaming like Jonah. I have laid aside my glory. I have come to earth. I have tabernacled myself in human flesh. I've become a human being. I've brought you God's love and his grace and his mercy. I've shown you the way of life, and you don't believe? The men of Nineveh will rise up on the day of judgment and condemn you. And he uses another, a second illustration, a second word of warning in verse 42. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, went to see Solomon. Solomon, the wisest of all men in his younger days, he began his career and showed, uh, showed great wisdom by you remember by sparing the infant child of the prostitute, remember the two prostitutes, one of them rolled over uh, in her sleep and smothered her child. And, and uh, so she took uh, uh, her dead baby and exchanged it with her roommate's live baby. And they began this dispute over the child and they wound up before the tribunal uh, of Solomon himself. And Solomon brilliantly orders that the live baby be cut in two and a half be given to each woman. And the woman who had smothered the child says, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, and the true mother says, no, don't harm the child. Give the child to the other. And Solomon said, she's the mother. And all were astonished at his insight, his discernment, his wisdom. But how does Solomon end his career? by allowing his foreign wives to erect high places in Israel and there offering the children that he sired as sacrifices. Jesus says, I know Solomon and he's no Jesus. He may have begun well, but he ended poorly. And yet this queen of the south, this pagan woman came this great distance to hear him and believed him. And you don't believe me? He says, do you realize the jeopardy, the danger that you place yourself in? And then as a, a third illustration, a third word of warning, he takes the story uh, that is, I believe, at the heart of all of this in verses 43 through 45. He says, when a demon is expelled from a man, it wanders in desert and uh, arid places and then finally says, hey, I had it pretty good back there. I'm going to get seven others like myself even stronger and more wicked than me and go back and reoccupy that place. What's Jesus speaking of here? Is it demon possession? No, I really don't think so. He's saying, speaking of this generation, I'm talking about you. Jesus has just told us in the text, uh, uh, that, again, that we looked at a few weeks ago, how do I work my miracles? It's like a house that a strong man has occupied. I bind the strong man and then I plunder his house. 
I can sweep it out. I can clean it. I've been going through Israel cleaning house, taking names, cleaning house. And you stand here, and when your child is sick, you bring him and you say, heal my child. Jesus, when you're sick, you come. And, and when you need advice, you come. But you're still standing back. You're swept clean, but you're empty. There's a resistance to me invading and becoming Lord of every faculty and every part of your, of your house, your person. And if there's a picture of the organized church in America in the 21st century, this may be it. It is a house swept clean. The church is concerned about morality as we should be. Everyone's concerned about causes and issues, and we have reams of them, fine. But those things can be nothing but a house swept clean. Well, I don't do these things anymore. I used to do that, and now, you know, I'm upright. I don't do those things. I don't frequent those places. I surely don't do those things anymore. I don't watch that. I don't read that. I'm, uh, it's like you're part of that house swept clean. And we don't realize that out there, evil is lurking, ready to come back in and seize control because, you know, there may be nothing there. It's empty. Listen to how one commentator has so pointedly, and I think prophetically captures this. He says, few realities are more vulnerable to demonic attack than good middle-class life. Precisely because this life is so empty, vacuous, passionless, since people do not live by bread alone but by their passions, great ideologies come sweeping in where houses have been swept out. And they find people with the causes they need to live by. The old unclean spirit and seven isms comes blowing into clean but empty communities and sweep them away, sweep them away. Let the suburbs beware. And then he says, empty, neutral, externally Christianized people, sooner or later, find that their little passions from civic clubs to sports, from politics to parlor games, are insufficiently fulfilling. These activities become demonic when they start to fill the lives of their devotees. There's nothing wrong with these things in proportion, but I ask you as I ask myself, what is your passion if it isn't Jesus Christ, then beware that you might be a house swept clean that is being filled with something else worse than before. And finally, Christ speaks what I believe is a word of comfort there in verses 46 through 50. Jesus' mother and his siblings are outside, and someone says, hey, your mother and your brothers, they're outside, and they want to have a word with you. Uh, now, we know from Mark chapter 3 that they've been there for a while. In Mark chapter 3, we find that uh, at the beginning of this 
this controversy that Jesus was having with religious leaders over whether uh, or not he's doing his miracles by the power of the evil one. His mother and other family, uh, other family members have, have gone and they've sort of waited outside trying, to, uh, trying to, to seize him, to draw him away because they see him as, as being mentally unbalanced. He's just not himself. He's in there disputing with the religious authorities, and that's not the way to conduct yourself. And so they're waiting outside, wanting to lay hold of Jesus, to get him home, and just to to nurse him back to health, to to get him back to his good senses before they're willing to, to turn him loose again on the public. They're out there going, uh, you know, this is embarrassing. We've got to save him from himself. And so someone notifies Jesus that his family is waiting for him, and Jesus asks, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he answers, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, those are my mother and brothers and sisters. And this to me, personally, is one of the most comforting verses in all of the Scriptures. Because if there are keystone cops and real stooges in the Scripture, it's the disciples. These guys who want to look so good in public, you know. Jesus is out there standing and holding court, and they stand on either side of him, uh, you know, sort of nodding knowingly at one another, you know, like graduate assistants in the university. And then as soon as they get him alone, and you, what in the world were you talking about? A sower goes out to sow. I mean, what does that mean? And Jesus responds, if you don't understand these simple things, how are you going to understand anything that I have to say? Don't you get it? I mean, these guys were not the sharpest tool in the drawer, you know? They're a little slow on the uptake. But Jesus didn't see them as a joke. And when I sit there and have to say again and again, Lord, I am clueless. Lord, I have no idea what you're doing. Lord, I don't understand. Lord, I don't know. My temptation is like Jesus' blood family is to stand outside and look and trying to figure things out and explain it in such a way that it won't be embarrassing to my neighbors and kind of try and make Jesus and his church look as good as possible. But Jesus said, those that are my real family, those that are not simply empty rooms, But those are those who are beginning to be filled by me, are these here, seated at my feet, looking up. These little faiths who really understand so little of what I say and do, but they're in the only safe place in the world, and that's at Jesus' feet, looking up and saying, we don't understand. 
But Lord, keep talking. Keep talking. Where are you this morning? Are you hurting? Are you confused? And you just want a sign. We've all been there. Jesus says, I've given you an undeniable sign in my resurrection and many others beside that. And if that's not enough, you won't believe, should I rearrange the furniture? He says, sit at my feet. That's doing the Father's will. Set your eyes off of all but me. Look at me, and I will fill you. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we... We do praise you for that sign that can turn us from death to life, from fear to faith. Open our eyes and let us see Christ risen, triumphant, reigning, coming again in power and glory. And when we're hurting and confused, help us to sit at your feet and to listen and to bask in your love as we hear the great good news of the gospel, that we who sit as empty learners at his feet are those who do your will, and so are your family. We commit ourselves to you, O Lord. Fill us. Fill us that we might be full. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.